0: Hey guys, welcome into another edition of the Reed Foster Podcast. I am, wait for it, Reed Foster. Wow, I never would have guessed it was him talking. Anyway, no sports pod this week. I know I said we'd be trying to get two per week, but unfortunately some stuff came up and prevented that from happening. But obviously a whole lot to talk about on that front next week with Masters wrapping up and the NHL and NBA playoffs right on the horizon. But today I'm joined by my good friend and music journalist Jared McNett, He's the editor-in-chief at All Fresh Sounds, one of the best music blogs out there. Again, that's All Fresh Sounds. Definitely go check that out. We talk about everything under the sun, starting from his favorite albums of the year so far, what he's looking forward to. We talk about what Drake has been able to do to dominate the decade so far, and a whole lot else. So, great conversation we had. Check it out. Here I am with Jared McNett. So I wanted to have you on to sort of, you know, you you know music about as well as anyone that I know. Um, and I it's been a little bit, we talked about this, it's been a little bit of a light year for music, uh, relatively speaking, but I think we've still had a few pretty notable releases um, thus far. Would you say that anything, any album that's been released so far would be a contender for album of the year for you?
1: Oh, man, that's a good question, and... I really don't think so. Like that, at the end of the year, I would see on an album of the year list somewhere, and would go, "Yeah, that like makes sense and is totally deserved." The one that I would make the best case for that I think I already was talking to you about before is probably the Nicholas Yar album that he put out under his alter ego or whatever Mm -hmm. you want to call it. I don't know if it's an alter ego or pseudonym or just like a side project, but. Uh, that 2012 to 2017 release would come the closest to that, and I still don't think that's like an album of the year, like world-beating album. It's really good. It's got some amazing beats on it, but yeah, I still don't think that's like top top shelf. You would find it in another year,
0: right? And I would, uh, you know, I'm, I don't know, I I appreciate what Nicholas. <laughs> uh, I've always called Nicholas Jar, but it, it's Yar. I
1: think. Uh, I'm not one to pronounce Trillian names correctly one way or the other, so. That's we can, fair. We, yeah, we can go either way. <laughs>
0: um, I, I like him, I respect him, but there's always just been a little something that I just haven't quite connected with. Um, whereas I thought what was great about this project, the, uh, against all logic, like 2012 through 2017 was that it was finally just like, this is not some like deep, like art project for you to consume and there's like nothing wrong with something like that but it's just yeah. we're gonna have 12 really banging songs that you're gonna want to <laughs> dance your ass off to
1: yeah it was just like it was weird because um when I finally got around to listening to that I think it was like a day or two after like people were writing about it and saying hey Nicholas are sort of like uh surreptitiously put out this album I was putting it on as I was going to see Annihilation. I was like, well, more Nicholas Yard music is going to be perfect to go see Annihilation. And I put it on and I was like, oh shit, this is just like really warm house music. And that's not what I was expecting at all. And like, yeah, it's a total change up from his other stuff, which I think is probably one reason why people have reacted to that one as well as they have.
0: Right, it's almost like uh, like a rapper putting out like a serious concept album, then just dropping a quick mixtape where he's just doing a bunch of uh, like trap bangers where he's talking about doing lean or some shit.
1: Yeah, it's almost like a throat clearing, but like a really productive like throat clearing.
0: <laughs> exactly, um, and it's always weird with projects that like with electronic artists where they do like this is just some tracks I I've made over like five years or so. Yeah. Um, and so you know, he was just in a completely different mindset uh, for making all those different tracks. Um, I, you know, I liked a lot of the samples. I it still catches me off guard every time. I forgot what song it's on, but the uh, from kind from Yeezus. Oh God. Yep. That always yeah. catches me off guard.
1: That's just a great uh, flex move to remind people that yo, I worked on Yeezus. <laughs> like... <laughs> oh, he did. Yep.
0: <laughs> He's like the only person I didn't know who worked on it. Uh, yeah, I
1: forget what he did. I know he tinkered around with that album. Um, I
0: yeah. always find like the like with Kanye, especially for someone like him because like you look at the the featured guest list or like contributors for his albums and it's always a really long list. Yeah. Um but I always make a point to go look at those because you always end up discovering some great music. Like, um, Gustafelstein, who actually was featured on a couple tracks on the new Weekend EP, he did a few tracks on, he produced a few tracks on Yeezus, and I went and discovered him, and he's, you know, super industrial, crazy, electronic music, and, you know, you see, uh, like, Arca was working on Yeezus, um, and that's someone I wouldn't have known about other, if I hadn't looked into it otherwise.
1: Yeah, like, it, it does seem at this point any any Kanye album, some of the people that are working behind the scenes on it, they're gonna break much bigger not long after they're on those albums if they're not already big. Like, I mean, Travis Scott was all over like what Yeezus ended up sounding like mm-hmm. and I mean, it's then no surprise that like he blew up after that. Exactly. Or, the I, I still would argue the biggest one of that is Kid Cuddy with 808s and Heartbreak. Like, that album doesn't necessarily sound the way it does without Kid Cudi, and Kid Cudi's basically gotten to like coast on that, deservedly so, for like a decade now.
0: Right, and it's it's crazy that he still like he's in Wyoming right now with Kanye. He's yeah. always involved in every Kanye recording session. Um, and I'm saying this as someone who I, I like the earlier Kid Cudi stuff, but like pretty much everything since Man of the Moon Two has been transcendently bad. <laughs>
1: It's so weird because even now I still think, like, I'll still listen to his albums and I'm inclined to agree with you. I don't think his stuff now is as good. But he's still, even now, like, he has a really good ear for music and stuff. It's just that his rapping, man, has never been his strong suit. Like...
0: No. <laughs> well, it's like, I don't mind, um, what do you call it? I don't mind... If someone is going to keep being making music about being depressed or whatever, I, I'm, you know, like I, I, think you need to make music that you that's about you. But yeah. what I don't like is when the music when that's just the point. I'm sad. Yeah. Okay. Okay, buddy. Like I, I want something like, um, you know, like Elliot Smith, for example. Like I think, um, what do you call it? What it, a question mark? Like the song off XO. He's talking about like um, panic took you out and kept you in, uh, giving you an easy game and letting you win. So that's like sort of exploring the depths of his depression and his mental illness uh, in a way that Cuddy's music never doesn't really do. Yeah,
1: you maybe got a little bit of that on like the first two Man on the Moon albums, but not nearly as much since then, I no. would say, in terms of any exploratory of like any kind of... Mental stuff like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet, it, his little hums at the end of Waves still just <laughs> bring a tear to my eye.
1: Yeah, I talk about, like, anytime I end up talking with, like, any of my friends uh, here in Kansas City about Life of Pablo or Jesus, The two of the things that always come up the quickest are Kid Cudi humming at the end of Waves and then also uh, Kid Cudi just kind of
0: mumbling... Is that the end of Guilt Trip?
1: Yeah, at the end of Guilt Trip. Yep. Like, he's so good just doing, like, melodic mumbling and, like, just kind of humming and
0: shit. Uh, Like, Kanye's just very... Like, he's almost very Belichickian in the sense that, like, he understands that, like, you know, Cuddy's got all these great weaknesses, but he's got that one strength, and he's going to exploit that one strength for every little bit it's worth.
1: So, Kid is like Wes Welker,
0: then? Exactly. <laughs> Never got the big contract afterward, unfortunately. No. Uh, <laughs> um, another album. I would agree against all logic. That's definitely right up there. Another album that dropped this year, uh, dropped pretty recently. The new Casey Musgraves album, Golden Hour. Uh, okay. I would say those that, and against all logic, have both those two are the ones that have really stuck out to me so far. And Casey Musgraves is someone that I've known and I've liked her music, but she's never—I've never been like the the biggest Casey Musgraves fan. And part of that's just because I'm still somewhat acclimating myself to country music.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is funny because like I understand why this one broke with more people because some of it's just you know over time that's going to happen. Like especially three albums in when all the albums are pretty good. But it is still kind of funny how much more of a look this album has gotten from like people and then just publications in general mm-hmm. than like her other records. Like I mean, the fact that it is like all over pitchfork right now is pretty funny. <laughs>
0: right. I saw someone. Uh, someone I saw someone on Twitter was like emotion, like um, Golden Hour is the emotion of country music. The in reference to the Carly Rae Jepsen album, and I, I totally <laughs> agree.
1: Yeah, no that that's completely fitting because I mean that's a great the Carly Rae Jepsen album is a great album but it also is at least slightly inexplicable that that somehow became like the de jour like <laughs> album for like music blogs to get behind of like pop albums. Like you really could have made a similar case for uh like a couple different other pop albums. Like the production's on that the production on that album is good but it's not So amazing to the point that you go, okay, it makes sense that Carly Rae Jefferson's emotion was the one that like broke through,
0: (laughs) right? Well, and it's not like um, you know, like someone like Charlie XCX who has been working with pretty forward-thinking producers, like aligning herself with the PC Music crew. Uh, You know, Carly was working with pretty much the same producers that your typical pop artist would work with. She's working with you know, like Jack Antonoff, kind of writing the songs, Um, Rotsam, whatever. I. I don't want to mispronounce the name, but the guy from like Vampire Weekend that works on Pop Artist. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and yeah, that's not to poop on Carly. Like, I think Emotion, as you said, it's a great album, and it was good enough where they were able to put out a B side album that I thought was very good as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is weird where people are now like, it's almost just become a meme. Where are are like, yeah, I like Carly Ray Jepsen Emotion. I'm so weird and hip and quirky. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that
1: that sort of phenomenon it doesn't seem that different from every year there will be one metal album that like the music blogosphere will on to as well so like mm-hmm. 2013 it was Death heaven 2015 again it was probably Death heaven other years it was like pallbearer um last year it was sort of bellwitch a little bit with their album that they put out mm-hmm. and I think it's a little bit the same with pop because it's weird, even though pop like still does pretty well on the charts, to music blogs pop music sometimes seems a little niche. At least more mainstream pop. Obviously, right. there's indie pop everywhere. But yeah, so it pop almost gets treated like this niche genre on like music blogs.
0: Well, and I find that like a lot of people who read music blogs, they're sort of looking just to like fill a checkbox mm-hmm. where, you know, like you said, like a metal album will pop up. And people want to be able to say, like, on their end-of-the-year list, hey, I like metal. Look at this. I listened to that Deaf Heaven album. Hey, I I listened to Mastodon, Crack the Sky in 2009. Yeah. It was one of my favorite albums from that year. You can't say I don't like metal. You can't say I don't have diverse tastes. Um, and I guess it's the same with pop because, you know, we sort of – you know, we want – people have decided they don't want to be viewed as pretentious yeah. um, because – and I understand how it got to that point where, like, a lot of people would flex their music taste and just be douchebags about it. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I, I'm I, just not here for any sort of performative enjoyment. Yeah. I, just be genuine with your opinions is all I want. Yeah, it,
1: it does feel pretty, like, transparent with some of, like, some of those picks sometimes of, like, okay – like, I really am curious, because I, I read a lot of those sites every single day, and, like, I don't see uh, – oh, who's a good example of this? I don't see, like, Kamasi Washington getting written about all the time, but then when it comes to, like, the end of the year, all of a sudden Kamasi Washington is on, like, year the uh, end of the year list, and I'm like, were you guys really, like – pumping jazz music this whole time or it just got to the end of the year and you got nervous and sweaty and started looking around the room
0: right well and how convenient is it that kamasi i mean you bring him up and they don't get talk about it that much but kamasi is talked about way more than any other jazz artist and you know it's and literally it's just because you can say well you know he's worked with kendrick lamar yeah so so Uh, i mean
1: like i think second like, of even, like, jazz people get talked about by music blogs is maybe, like, Christian Scott. And, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, he still doesn't get that much, like, pub. Like, he'll get his album reviewed somewhere, but it's going to be, like, a 7.2, and, like, it's -hmm. just a day day thing, and that's it. (laughs) Well,
0: and it's weird because, like, there are artists that are relatively popular that don't really get discussed in the context of jazz. Um, Like, I would argue that You're Dead, the last Flying Lotus album... That, to me, is a jazz album. Yeah. I understand that, like, there's electronic production on there, there's hip-hop influences and all that, but at its core, it's a jazz album, but it's pushed jazz to the future. And it seems to me that a lot of times, people just think jazz, all jazz means is that there's horns.
1: Yeah. I mean, you could definitely make the case for, like, in your own sort of ways, Fly Low albums, I would say, going back to Cosmo Grandma, as being... yeah like, jazz in some way or another. And even even seeing him live, which I finally have to do a couple months back, I mean, obviously, it's in the form of a DJ set, but, like, it still has some, like, jazz set sort of feels to it and sort of how, like, things sort of fold into each other and how kind of free-willing he can be sometimes when he's going live like that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, he definitely... And maybe that's then, like, an out for people. Like, no, hey, Philo is technically jazz, guys. So we're ripping, we're up in Low. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: well, the interesting thing is I, um... I caught, um... A, it was a pretty weird show, uh, like, a month or so ago. It was Tony Allen, fella Cootie's drummer, with mm-hmm. Jeff Mills, the uh, Detroit techno artist or whatever. And they were... There's some other guy there who's playing keyboards. Um... And it, at that set, it was pretty incredible to me just realizing how closely related um, two seemingly disparate genres such as jazz and house music are. And they're so related. Oh,
1: yeah. Like, and yeah, there's definitely some of the same like DNA that's getting drawn from there. Um, but yeah, what would I'm trying to think of some shit that would be like good uh, jazz and house music pairings now because that's a pretty good one with tony allen
0: (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah it was a pretty crazy set it was one of those where like you're trying to dance but you're like i'm also trying to think about this too you got a lot of confused faces
1: (laughs) especially when you got that like like when you've got that level of like technically efficient and proficient drumming that some people don't know how to handle that sometimes
0: (laughs) right well, it was just cool being able to, like, you look up and right before they make a switch, like, Tony will just look over to Jeff and he'll just, he'll make a little motion with his hands or with his eyes or something. And Jeff intuitively knows where to go next.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that, yeah, that's, that's somebody that's been doing it for a long damn time. If they're able to just go like that, man. Right. <laughs>
0: that just has to get seeped into your bones. Um, that's,
1: that's some, like. Springsteen and the E Street band being able to just do cover songs on the fly. Right type shit.
0: Um, that that's such a crazy talent. Um, I, I never like I never really get how like people like like Fish or whatever, they just tour and they do like six shows a night and every single one is completely unique.
1: Yeah, like I'm I'm amazed at artists that are just able to remember, like, all the lyrics and all the chords and stuff and all the tabs or whatever for their songs, let alone being able to do someone else's song on the fly, like, if
0: right. pressed. <laughs> well, not only that, but it's like, how often, like, do you know the exact same song with someone else? Like, I could be talking about Radiohead with a friend of mine, and we'll be talking about, like, OK Computer or something, and I'll mention my favorite song on there, and they'll be like, oh, I don't remember that lyric at all. I'm like, yeah, oh.
1: exactly. Like, like... Music in particular, like, would be so demanding to replicate because of just how diffuse everything is. Like, you, mm-hmm. there sometimes is not any overlap at all between people when you're talking like favorite music and whatnot. Right. Even among people that are big music nerds. So, yeah.
0: Right. Well, and it's a it's a good reminder just of like you all like I get to the point where I get to points where I'm like I know everything, I know about every music that's ever been released. And then you talk to someone, you're like, actually, I've never heard anything in my life.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and it doesn't take long for that to turn on a dime. Especially, hell, like, you can just find, like, entire artists or entire eras of artists that, like, you're previously undiscovered, and then that's just a rabbit hole for the month. Right. Like, there's plenty of blues stuff that I listen to and know about, mm-hmm. but then I found myself going down, like, another blues rabbit hole, like, a month or two ago, and I was like, shit, here's more music that I actually haven't spent that much time with. That's not even close to present day. So I'm nowhere closer to having (laughs) listened to everything under the sun.
0: Right. Well, then especially once you start to bring in the idea of like, you know, stuff in different languages, stuff from other countries, not just America and not just England, then you really flip up the situation.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. At that point. Yeah. It becomes (laughs) becomes almost impossible. Like, uh. The other night I was talking music uh, with some people whose tastes were clearly, like, way different than mine, and there was a lot of very narrow niche, like, folk punk and whatnot, Right. and I was like, oh, I just know, like, the Mountain Goats, which kind of counts, and AJJ, and that's, like, the extent of my knowledge in this realm.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, like, I know, like, the Violent Femmes.
1: Oh, yeah, I guess that counts, too, yeah.
0: Um... I mean, personally, I, I think the whole idea of folk punk is, it's admirable, but also I think a little silly.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is kind of, it almost is like doubling up on the same thing, because, I mean, folk and punk have the same spirit anyway, so I guess right. it makes sense to merge them, but at the same time, you don't need to, because it's, again, it's the same thing.
0: <laughs> exactly. Uh, They're
1: just expressed slightly differently
0: yeah i mean i guess like uh with folk punk people can hear angry vocals a little clearer yeah uh um what do you call it so are there any other albums so like we talked about albums that have come out what albums are you looking forward to to be released this year they don't have to necessarily have already officially been announced but you know ones that you speculate could drop as well
1: well, let's see. Some of the long-standing ones got released in the past couple of years, so I'm not waiting for a new Avalanche's record anymore. Jeez, um, let me think about this. Well, there's probably going to be, well, definitely Kanye. There's going to be some new Kanye this year. Yeah. Um,
0: well, and you talk about long-standing. Uh, My Bloody Valentine made their comeback, but I know Kevin Shields said that a new album is definitely coming out this year as well.
1: Yeah, that's right. I had almost forgotten about that. So that's, I mean, that's probably got to be near the top of the list, which I am still amazed that, well, I guess shit. a couple people did it because Ride and Slow Dive managed the same thing. They mm-hmm. put out an album like almost 20 plus years after the fact that just picked right back up like no time it'll last at
0: all. Right.
1: And I mean, that's absurd considering how quickly we filter through stuff.
0: I almost think, though, that's like the better idea because like 20 years later is enough to go through a full cycle to back to the point where, you know, dream pop, shoegaze, that's back in vogue.
1: Oh, yeah. It was like that time. It could not have felt better because there were so many bands uh, by the time like that MBV album dropped a couple years ago Mm -hmm. that had kind of shoegazy like textures in their music. Mm -hmm. And at that point, it definitely felt like my bloody Valentine was like, all right this is how this show actually works. (laughs) Right.
0: Well, and like, I thought that like the whole shoegaze revival, a lot of it was tied to the rise of cloud rap because of the similar effects and textures of the two genres.
1: Yeah. Another one I would say from this year that I'm thinking about, uh, Janelle Monae, uh, it's definitely one I'm looking forward to. Mm-hmm. Although, I mean, that one is one that has like an actual release date and everything. Right.
0: But, I mean, I that, mean it's, it doesn't eliminate it to have a release date. I just say, I didn't want to yeah. like limit it to ones that have already been officially announced.
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, I, I, I also just got to
1: rep for Janelle Monáe since she's from Kansas City, which I point out every time Janelle Monáe comes up in Kansas City <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, um, the only time I've seen her, I caught her in Kansas City, which is pretty lucky to be able to catch a hometown show she oh, yeah. uh she put on such an incredible performance. Yeah. Um, no. uh, what did you say? Uh, well, like you know, they're all, everyone's all wearing white, very uniform look. She's got the backup dancers going crazy. All the instruments are one hundred percent on point. Um, and I remember like seeing that, and like that was a show that I got tickets for for like thirty bucks, uh, general admission, and I couldn't believe that she wasn't bigger. I kept thinking to myself, like, this woman is, like, literally everything that we – every superlative we ascribe to Beyonce is actually more applicable to Janelle Monae. Yeah,
1: well, it is funny, especially with music, because even eventually, like, a popular kind of indie movie at first, like, if it, like, gets enough looks, it'll eventually get bigger. Like, Lady Bird – it was weird. When Lady Bird came to Kansas City, and I'm wondering if this happened in other cities, it first was only at, like, the indie movie theater – and then I just kept seeing it at more and more theaters for more and more showtimes and then it just stayed there and like that happens Mm -hmm. with movies but it is weird that like you can have in music like even the biggest possible indie acts like Vampire Weekend or someone like that who at like an indie music festival they're going to headline and they're going to draw a massive crowd Mm -hmm. and it's going to be great and then fucking most people don't still know who they are like at all and only in music do you have that kind of thing like that um hmm. and so yeah like Janelle Monae is absurdly talented um like it's deserved at least a little bit to like talk about her and Prince obviously she hasn't been doing it as long as Prince did it but right. I mean in terms of being able to sing and dance and like have an, a vision that she executes cleanly I mean there it's a short list of people that are doing it as well or better than she is
0: Right, and what I the one thing that I would argue is that um, I, I think what what's interesting about Janelle Monae is that she's come back, and there's notably a lot more press coverage for the release of this new album than there was for any of the previous albums, and yeah. a lot of that is just because she's been in a few movies since. I thought yeah. she did a fantastic job in Moonlight, did a great job in Hidden Figures, even if I wasn't a huge fan of that movie. Um, but it's you know she had to step out and do that to become more, to become more popular in the music realm. Um, and I, I guess I was never really surprised that she became an actor because so much of her music is for as poppy and and maybe not poppy is not the right word, but I think it's always been very accessible type of music, but it's always been very conceptual. There's always been a very firm idea behind it. And she knows what character she's playing in every single song.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: Um,
1: so, yeah, I, I absolutely cannot wait for that for that shit to drop. Um, mm-hmm. Speaking of, I said Vampire Weekend. I know they're putting out mm-hmm. an album this year, um, which has another ridiculously silly name. Um, I think it's like Mitsubishi Macchiato or something.
0: That sounds um, about right.
1: Which is pretty appropriate for that band. And it's weird because, like, at this point, when you're talking about Vampire Weekend, you know, mm-hmm. like, what an album of theirs is going to sound like pretty well. And Mm -hmm. when it comes to movies, I was just talking to someone about this the other day Mm -hmm. that I'm kind of done with Wes Anderson movies because, like, I just know what I'm going to get with a Wes Anderson movie at this point. Mm -hmm. And he's done enough movies that I'm like, okay, like, I can just go back to, like, the ones that I actually like a lot, like Moonrise Kingdom or whatever else. Mm -hmm. And, like, theoretically that should be the case with Vampire Weekend too. but I guess Vampire Weekend hits a different spot in my brain where I'm always going to be down for, for New Vampire Weekend.
0: Right. Well, I wondered, you know, since the last album, uh, Modern Vampires of the City, right? Yeah. Um, Since that last album, they've both, both, um, what's his face? Both Ezra Koenig, Koenig? I don't know how to pronounce it. And and, uh, Rotsam, both of them have gone out and done a number of other pursuits, producing and writing for pop stars. And uh, I know Ezra did that anime show uh, New York, or Something like New York or something like that on, um, what's his face, on Netflix. So I'm curious yeah. if perhaps those uh, experiences are going to change those artists because they are, I mean, they're both guys that were at, they met at NYU Music School. So yeah. you know that they, you know they have the uh, musical training. Um, you brought up Wes Anderson. I unfortunately was not able to get to the movie theaters this week, had a, a hectic week. Um, but I, I want to get your take on Isle of Dogs his most recent film that has come under some criticism for the, I guess, Orientalism has been the description how he has sort of uh, put on, you know, he's sort of dehumanized uh, Japanese people in this film. And people were touching on how Wes Anderson has always had a little bit of a fraught relationship with non-white people. Did you get those vibes when you watched Isle of Dogs?
1: so it's funny like because I mean Darjeeling Limited the same case could have been made for that movie and that was like 10 years ago right (laughs) like like Darjeeling Limited they literally are traveling through India and then most of the movie is just three like white dudes in a train car right but um yeah like with this one um I mean the main kid's name is Atari Kobayashi which it's like come on man
0: oh god (laughs)
1: like
0: if you wanted to keep
1: people, yeah. If you wanted to keep people away from like any uncomfortable race talk about your new movie, d- don't name your kid Atari Kobayashi. That's just a, that's a
0: start, like right there. <laughs> right. I mean, literally, like a video game company and the hot dog eating guy.
1: Yeah, exactly. Which I really, I really have to wonder if that's what happened. Like Wes Anderson was like, you know, walking around wherever he lives, in, like, the upper west side in Manhattan, probably, mm-hmm. or whatever. And, like, he sees, like, he, of course he has an Atari 2600, I guarantee you. And he just sees that, and then maybe, like, maybe he's secretly a big ESPN2 head, and they were rerunning old uh, Nathan's Hot Dog Eating contest. Yeah. Or and, it, something just clicked.
0: That had to be, or maybe he was eating hot dogs when he was writing the script, and that there was a subliminal go. thing. yeah. Uh, When I thought, like, with the Darjeeling Limited, you bring that up. The thing, I thought that movie was pretty self-aware. Like, the whole joke is that it's these, like, three white guys who are going to India for their spiritual salvation. Making fun of of the white guys who actually do that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that one definitely does work differently in that respect. Because there is sort of, there is definitely sort of a meta thing in that movie of, like... Like white people from America, or maybe England, sometimes too. Like mm-hmm. feeling the need to like rediscover themselves by going to some strange land. Right. Um, yeah. So like, *There's Really Limited* is definitely different in that sense because like that's a, that's a movie where they're going somewhere versus like *Isle of Dogs* is mostly just set already in mm-hmm. Japan, and then it still has like the vibe it does.
0: Right would you say that the film is still pretty good or like do you, would you say that you mentioned earlier that you know with you know with Wes Anderson like Vampire Weekend you kind of know what you're going to get at this point do you think that a lot of the backlash has just been because because we know what we're getting with the actual con- with the quality and content of the film there's not even a point uh, in discussing that
1: yeah, so um, I think the most succinct thing I heard somebody put it with um, with Isle of Dogs was uh, one of the episodes the other day, I don't remember what day, of uh, the Daily Zeitgeist, which is a really good podcast I listened to. Their guest for that day described the movie as, like, they said, basically, never have I seen a movie before that took this much care and not saying anything at all. And, I mean, obviously, not every movie has to make some grand pronouncement about something. Right. But... A lot of Wes Anderson movies don't, even the ones I love, don't necessarily have a lot to say about much of anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, I guess, like, Moonrise Kingdom, I guess, is about, like, you know, like, first love and teenage romances and stuff like that, so mm-hmm. that one works. Right. Or, like, the same thing with Grand Budapest Hotel, kind of an identity and sort of figuring out who you are, but, like, I mean, what's, like, what's the point of, like, Life Aquatic? I mean...
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, what do you call it? And I, I feel like that is largely why Wes Anderson, even though he's someone that we consider one of the great directors of our era, I think that's why he's never won Best won best Director or had one of his films win Best Picture. Mm-hmm. Um, because I would say that... I, I think Royal Tenenbaums is his magnum opus. And even that one... You know, it talks about dysfunctional families and all that, and I think it's a really funny movie. But, I, I, yeah, I, I don't know what the point is.
1: Yeah. Like, it, it is weird because, I mean, they're obviously, especially in, say, Moonrise Kingdom and Royal Tenenbaums, I mean, there's definitely emotional, like, uh, points in those movies. I mean, like, Royal mm. Bombs, speaking of Elliot Smith, with the Elliot Smith uh, music playing and the Luke Wilson scene. But, yeah, like, sometimes the emotion, I I guess, also feels a little bit flat with his movies. It ends up being a lot more just sort of story and beat-driven than driven by any kind of emotionality at all with his movies. Right. Uh, Uh, Which is weird because, like, Tarantino movies, you could say that about those, too, but Tarantino movies, like, I mean, he's won, like, screenplay awards and stuff for those, and, like those continue to get lauded pretty well and I think mm-hmm. even his next movie is gonna do pretty well next year right but I, I don't know Wes Anderson's just in a weird like zone I guess
0: right Well, I guess that like that's and I guess part of it too is just like his movies are definitively comedies even yeah. if they sort of borrow from other genres they are definitively comedies whereas Tarantino to try and describe like I, literally the way I would describe his movies is the genre is Tarantino. Yeah. That's the genre of movie he's doing.
1: Yeah, the genre is self-reference.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, you talk about points. Like I thought, like uh, you know, I thought, was, I thought it was interesting that the Hateful Eight didn't receive any love from the Academy. Um, talking about Quentin Tarantino, mm-hmm. when I whereas I thought that was one of his. I I, I came, went to the theater and came away thinking that's one of his best movies. Yeah. So, so I
1: actually and my, part of it might have been I got to see it when they did like the uh, the 70 millimeter thing that they were showing it in yeah. with like the uh, the overture and the intermission and the sort of like touring books that they gave people right like part of it part of that might have influenced how I felt about the movie but I honestly and having rewatched it in a different format even still rep for that probably I think it's the second best movie after Pulp Fiction
0: I think it's right up there It. Yeah. I would say coin flip between that and Django for a second best. I didn't, and I think the way Hateful Eight, like the way the journey unfolds, where I just the, the whole concept of like how you determine how you trust someone. Yeah, where it just ends up where it's like, well, I I've I've seen you longer than this person, so I'm going to trust you. Um. And I guess the movies are a little long, but I mean, whatever. You're not gonna- Yeah.
1: Yeah, he basically he made the thing. As a Western. (laughs) Like, he just made a super paranoid, like, distrustful, like, bottle episode, but as a Western.
0: Right. Well, and it's interesting because, like, compared to his other movies, it's definitely very reserved. You don't really get a whole lot of action until the final act. Yeah,
1: like, I mean, there's the part where they're, like, uh, pounding... Uh, I think when Walter Goggins is, like, pounding stakes in the ground outside. Mm-hmm. And that scene goes on for a couple of minutes. And I was like, man, the way this is unfolding, I'm fine with this scene going on for, like, ten minutes. A, because the way it's shot, it just mm. looks cool. And then also just the slow burn of this movie works incredibly well.
0: Right. Well, I thought, like, the dialogue was just excellent. The yeah. Every interaction was pretty enjoyable to watch.
1: Yeah, you could tell even, like... Especially even with that movie compared to some of the other ones that he like clearly loved writing the script for that movie.
0: Exactly. Uh,
1: it, it, it shows it almost every turn.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh What do you call it? Wanted to get to a, a take you had that some people would call it a pretty scorching take. <laughs> uh, that 22 a Million is the best Bon Iver album.
1: Yeah.
0: I, I want you to defend this.
1: All right, um, so I love all three uh, Morty Fair albums quite a bit. Um, I remember, because by that point, when that first album came out in 2007, 2000, well, I guess 2007 it was a self-release, and then 2008 it came out um, on a label. But um, even when that one came out, I started listening to that because people were saying it sounded like Iron Wine, and I was big mm-hmm. on Iron Wine at that point. Mm-hmm. And so I love that record, and I loved For Emma, For or, that record and I loved uh, the self-titled album which a lot of people there were weird takes about why people didn't like that album some right. people like complained that like the mastering on it was off mm-hmm. and I'm like yo I don't think they're gonna put this album out if they like accidentally fuck something like that up right like, that doesn't seem like something a major indie label is gonna let happen like this was clearly an ast- I have to like ding it Right. I don't think this was a mistake that accidentally leaked out there. So I love that album. Um, when it came out in 2011, I think I had it as my top album of the year. And I might pick something different now, but I would still refer it being one of the two or three best albums of that year. Right. But I, I do think uh, 22, A Million is the best of the three because it kind of continues uh, Bon Bear's trend of... Like completely rewriting what a Bon Iver album is, while also keeping some of those core elements, like the the harmonies um, and the vocal melodies and stuff on this album are every bit as impressive as the first two albums. I would argue even better because I kind of have this affinity for incredibly talented singers also mm-hmm. using auto tune and messing with their voice. Mm-hmm. Like it's cool w- enough when you know somebody does it; that's not necessarily the best singer, but when you have like Frank Ocean doing what he does with Auto-Tune or James right. Blake or or Justin Vernon or Tom York that's a whole other level because those guys they don't need it and so what they're doing like they're talented enough with their vocals to like emote anyway and mm-hmm. when you have super emotive and expressive voices but then like coded and all this like mechanistic production it makes it sound so alien in like the mm-hmm. best sort of way um, and so Twenty two a Million definitely has that going for it. And then, obviously, the production is just a lot more ambitious than even the other two albums, because there's right. so much more going on in every song. Like, the album has, like, gospel samples on it, which, I mean, his previous albums didn't have any samples at all, really. Right. Um, yeah, I, I like, the, the list of people that worked on it was even more expansive. Like, basically, it just blew out all the Boney Bear stuff even more, which I think is why I ended up, like, feeling that way about that album even as much as I dig forever, forever* ago, and I think I was making the joke about that album that I really do think some of people's love for that album still is it more likely than not was the first Boni Bear album they heard mm-hmm. and they probably heard it when they were like late teens and I mean that's a perfect album to hear when you're a late teenager because right. it's just so it almost borders, but not quite on being like sort of almost satirically or like parody, like romantic in terms of like the, uh, so I understand why people like cling to that one so much, but I think if you sort of remove the rose colored glasses of, of nostalgia, 22 million is a better album. Um,
0: so I would say that I would completely agree with every point you made. You weren't expecting that, were you? Uh, (laughs) Um, And I would say that, even beyond the your point about, um, I would expand upon what you were saying about people's entry point being for Emma Forever Ago, I think that the big thing is just that they heard that first album, and it was just him with his guitar. Yeah. And from that point forward, that's all they wanted, was they wanted him with his guitar. And. Yeah. Even beyond that, I would say that interestingly enough, even though it's his most stripped-down album, I would say "For Emma" is easily his most accessible album, and it's the song. The songs are the most pop-friendly of any of his albums. Yeah, um, for sure. Like "Skinny Love" or "For Emma" are both are catchier, more immediate than any other track that he's got.
1: Yeah, there's there's definitely a reason why even now those are really the only songs is that you'll hear like outside of like music realms, like you're not gonna hear a lot of like at least not that I've heard anywhere a lot of like Holocene or certainly anything from this new album I don't think I've heard on like commercials or in movies.
0: Right, um, and I think even. I think you look back at Bon Iver, Bon Iver, uh, his second album in retrospect, it was apparent that that was a transition album to get from for Emma to where we are at now. Yeah. But even in there, I think that a lot of people were just very caught off guard by some of the stuff that he was throwing at us with that one. You know, he opens it up with, um, I can't, I can't remember if it was the first song or the second song where there's like a military, like drum beat going on. Yeah. Um,
1: Yeah. And then one of the songs, the kind of instrumental breakdown near the end, like the drum work is basically doing like blast beats, which is just straight out of like black metal. Right.
0: Right. (laughs) Um, And then you have like the closer, um, what's it called? Beth Rest, which is my favorite track on the album. But it's like this 80s ballad thing that no one, I still can't believe that that song exists. Because it it feels so cheesy, and yet every time it comes on, I'm I'm pulling up my heartstrings, singing along. Um, but it feels like no one else likes that song.
1: Yeah, it is funny. That one is super divisive because I actually I that's the only album or the only song on that album that I don't care for. But even still, so, I mean, I know I know the beat and I know the melody and everything from that song. Like right. so, even though I am not at all a fan of that song. I still, <laughs> as soon as you said Beth rest in my head, I was going yeah. Like it's, uh, So for that alone, like, I mean, it definitely deserves some praise.
0: Um, right. And then like, um, but yeah, and I think once you get to 22, a million, I would personally say, I think that this album is it is it crazy to say that I'm not sure I've heard an album in my time listening music that's pushed folk music farther than what Twenty Two A Million did?
1: Um, let me think about that. Yeah, because a lot of other you know folk albums, even like and God, a lot of what I listen to anymore um, is basically either rap or like indie folk. So I'm listening to a lot of indie folk these days. Right. And. A lot of it doesn't isn't necessarily pushing forward. It's just really well made within what it was. Like even uh, Julian Baker, who I was gushing about earlier and, and I'm always like proselytizing about, <laughs> even Julian Baker's stuff is sort of clearly like full and like a slow core sort of like aesthetic. So that still right. makes more sense. The the Bonnie Vare thing, I was I think I was talking to somebody about this on Facebook. There's slight precedence for twenty two a million with like some of the folk, tronica stuff from like the late two thousands, like Bibio and a couple other people. Right. Even yeah, kind of Caribou had a little bit of that going on. Mm-hmm. But twenty two a million is just a whole other beast when it comes to that sort of concept.
0: Right. Well, and it just shows that you can be, even with how expansive that it is, it's still an incredibly personal and incredibly intimate album, despite all of that.
1: Yeah, and another thing I like was caught thinking about the other day when I was re-listening to that album and like positing that take again. Um, can you think of a lot of other sort of lyric-driven? Because I was trying to do this too. A lot of other lyric-driven artists where you like can't recall very many of their lyrics at all because I have that with Boney Bear and like I look up the like the lyrics later and they're impressive because they're very elliptical and poetic Right, but like again I guess it's because of how expressively emotional of a singer he is I don't know the words to most of those songs but like I know the feels and like the intentionality of them or at least I think I do
0: right you can and definitely get the vibe
1: yeah and I can't think of a lot of artists that like have that going on
0: well I think a lot of it is intentionally um what do you call it? I think a lot of it is intentionally trying to sound like two different things. Mm-hmm. Um like the song you posted when you were talking about it creeks, my personal favorite on the album. You know, he closes it out and he's saying uh, like turn around you're my it sounds like he's either saying A team or 18. Yeah. And it's like saying like A team like you're my you're my number one, but also you're my 18 like you represent my youth. And like yeah. with you leaving, my youth is gone. Um, and I think like you talk about the lyrics. What's interesting is that he sort of eschewed your typical narrative structure for a lot of the lyrics. And a lot of it is just a the way it makes you feel, but also sort of um, how you say, like uh, just almost like choppy thoughts mm-hmm. where like it opens up like it might be like the first line is it might be over soon. Yeah. And that's just a random thought that's going on throughout your mind like it might be over soon um yeah
1: and i think that like a lot of times the more sort of opaque and non-narrative lyricists um don't always get the same kind of credit that right. other people do because like bernie vera like he, he stands toe-to-toe with a lot of other people in terms of just like writing abilities like, absolutely you know, yeah uh, it's just that in his songs, you're not able to kind of locate yourself as quickly as, like, the Mountain Goats or somebody else. That's a great lyrical group.
0: Exactly. Um, and I, I find with a lot, you know, I this is maybe a weird comparison. But I found that, like, a lot of people, I think, preferred Good Kid Mad City to To Pimp a Butterfly. Because a lot of the content on Good Kid Mad City, the structure of it is very straightforward. Whereas To Butterfly is a little more fragmented with how it's uh, laid out.
1: Yeah, like To Butterfly is a good example of this because I have... Actually, let me check right now. I can check my count. I've listened to that album 25 times all the way through, iTunes tells me. Um, and I still, like, I can't recite, like, lyric for lyric for each of that album. I can do that with Good Kid, Matt City, and I can do it with Damn. Mm-hmm. But yeah, To a Butterfly is just on its own. Like astral plane when it comes to that, and that's, right. that's a similar thing I guess with the Bon Iver stuff.
0: Right. Uh, I, I like you saying astral plane since you know first song produced by Flying Lotus. <laughs> um, I still wonder what would have what happened to um, you know like originally Flying Lotus like like produced the whole album or like he provided a whole album's worth of beats for right. Kendrick and was there kind of creating helping him create the concept for it.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, like, a, a whole album of just, like, Fly Low and Kendrick, and that's, like, the... Like, if if it's Mad Gibbs with uh, Freddie Gibbs and, um... Mad Lib. Yeah, but with Kendrick and um, Flying Lotus, that would be one hell of an album.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, the two songs they've done together, Never Catch Me and Wesley's Theory, are... I mean, I would say they're two, easily two of the best songs of the decade.
1: Yeah.
0: Um... Getting back to 22 a million, you're, I'm not really a religious person myself, um, but I I see you like posting uh, Bible verses and all that as a, 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 you're Christian, right? Yeah. Um, As a Christian, the gospel stuff and a lot of the content of it, you know, the whole idea of like, it might be over soon. Like he's kind of talking about a relationship, but also just the idea that like, you know, he could get hit by a bus or something and die um does it speak does it speak to your spiritual side your religious side at all
1: i mean yeah those those samples work really well on that level especially because one or two of the samples are like explicitly um gospel samples and um (laughs) here's me proselytizing again about julian baker but that's part of the um attraction too with uh like julian baker's music is that a lot of that is sort of like faith-driven and seeking in its own kind of way too. And I've, mm-hmm. I was talking to somebody – actually, I was talking to my uh, buddy Philip about this last night before we went and sold the show, but I've talked about this quite a few times. That one reason I like her music or, like, I like the – because I don't like a lot of religious music that much, like right. the stuff that gets played on, like, Christian radio. Mm-hmm. It's not interesting to me. The production value's not there. And the, But the main thing is a lot of the times the stuff I gravitate to it's still, like, is informed by some kind of faith like julian baker or even that right. 22 Million album a little bit like it's more about or leonard cohen is a great example of this those albums are about people that are are broken in some way and like that works a whole lot more because just like you don't really want to hear the songs over and over again about how well someone is doing in their relationship right you want to instead hear the songs about these people that are broken and trying to figure things out Because those are just more identifiable for most people. Right. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, I'd much rather want to hear that than someone singing about, yo man, like I've got this like relationship with a higher power figured out and my shit is fine. Every day (laughs) it's just sunshine and rainbows. Like I I don't have time for that kind of music.
0: (laughs) Is that a direct shot at Chance the Rapper?
1: Uh well it actually is weird because I don't mind Chance's stuff and I guess his his stuff definitely floats way more toward that end, um, but I think in that case he still succeeds because of how I mean how talented a rapper he is, and then like mm-hmm. musically how well like those songs work. Because I was I always have a soft spot for like soul rap beats and like vaguely right. psychedelic rap beats. But yeah, if someone was just like slightly to like the left or right of Chance when it comes to that sort of like record. Then I probably would not have liked it
0: the same. <laughs> right. Um, would you say in general? Um, how, do you know? Do you notice um, your faith painting the way that you consume music relative to your non-religious friends at all?
1: Um, hmm, but probably, probably not too much. Now, other than maybe I like leonard cohen a lot more than other like some other people do right and like i mean you can fuck with leonard cohen and like not give a damn at all about like any old testament stories or whatever right but like if you if you know some old testament stuff and then they're listening to leonard cohen songs you're like man the fact that he turned this like into just like a weird like messy like romance song is pretty amazing Mm -hmm. so maybe, maybe just in that sort of way it's a little bit different
0: do you ever like – I know like – I mean you listen to like pretty much everything and obviously ab- amongst everything includes a lot of artists that are pretty outspoken about being like they're very, very much atheists or whatever, anti-religion or whatever. Um, does that affect Does that affect the way you listen to it where it's a little off-putting for you?
1: Nah, not really. Um, yeah, I can't really think of an example of that. Cause like I'm I'm the same when it comes to like I I'm always down for people like using their platform to speak about whatever they care about. So right. like even as like dumb headed as say like who's he using? like Kurt Schilling or whatever who is consistently pretty dumb headed. Oh like, god. I'm, yeah, I'm still fine with him like using like his platform to talk about the shit he wants to talk about. In his case. It's, like, hateful and stupid, but, I mean, Mm -hmm. I'm not going to, like, slam – well, I'll slam what he says, but I'm not going to slam him saying it. And the same thing with, yeah, like – I mean, I listen to, like, Slayer, like, Christ Illusion and stuff like that, and, I mean, (laughs) do I come to the same conclusions about – well, I might come to a few of the same conclusions about certain facets of organized religion as Slayer does. Well, but do I come to the same conclusions entirely? No, but do I still know the words that God hates us all? Absolutely. Exactly.
0: Because <laughs> um, I I just, I know like me personally, and this isn't fair, but like, you know, whenever like, like people start talking about like Jesus and God in songs, it, it's not that like, it's not that I don't like them or anything, but it makes me uncomfortable just because it's not something that I traditionally talk about, right? Um, So I was I was just curious how like that affected you because I would say that you're, you're, it's pretty rare for me personally to, to come across someone who's as into music as you are, but also a devout Christian.
1: Yeah. And yeah, just talking about religion in general usually ends up being one of those conversational third rails for a whole bunch of people too. Right. <laughs>
0: um what do you call it? Like Jim Gaffigan has a bit where he's talking about like, has anyone ever come up to like anytime anyone comes up to someone and says, "Hi, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus." I'd rather not. <laughs> he's like yeah, exactly. Like even the pope would be like, "Hey man, I I keep work at work."
1: Yeah, exactly. Like even yeah, even Francis would be like, Hey, I'm I'm just I'm really just trying to watch a quiet place right now. I'm not trying to. <laughs> exactly. Like uh, you can bend my ear if you want, but just know this isn't what I'm I'm ready and wanting to talk about right
0: now. <laughs> right. Um, before we go, and I appreciate you sticking with me as long as you have. Um, what do you call it? Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on Brock Hampton. How do you feel about them? <laughs>
1: Uh, I'm not a Brock Hinton fan at
0: all, man. <laughs> I, uh, I like, I, I'd i only like recently started to enjoy them. Because for the longest time, I was just very confused. Yeah. Th- about their whole existence. Um, what do you call it? Um, is there any like, specific you don't like about them, or is this, like, it's the weird? I,
1: I think part of it is that it's all, and I don't know if this is a product of being in the age that we're in with. We, you know, with SoundCloud and streaming being so prevalent and Bandcamp and everything else, it, it just has felt, with them especially, is where I've, I've noticed it most Clean Lady, Maybe some of the other, like, mumble rap dudes, too. But all of the build-up and everything has just seemed a little too perfect and a little too... Manufactured might not quite be the right word, but it's right. it's on that kind of plane, if you know what I mean.
0: Right, definitely. Yeah. Um, it, it mirrors a lot of people bring up the Odd Future comparisons, but it, it sort of mirrors that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Where you're not, you're not quite sure why they're getting the pub. Uh, yeah, although,
1: although with the Odd Future thing, like, it that felt more, well, obviously it felt more explosive just like lyrically and everything. Right. But also, it, it Odd Future did feel a little more shambolic because like, you had all these kind of clashing personalities that are a lot more cleanly, I mean, uh, I don't listen to Brock Amman as closely as other people, but, like, I mean, those, some of those personalities blur together a little bit versus Odd Future. Mm-hmm. You've got, like, some stoner rappers that are in there, and you've got, like, like one of the most lyrically proficient rappers of the past 30 years. Of course, I'm talking about Jasper with that. Um, uh, are
0: they going to say Taco? <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so, like, th- then you had all these very outsized, like, flashing... And, I mean, for God's sake, Frank Ocean was, like, like in that orbit, too. So, like, right. that did feel a little bit different, even though that is probably the most readily available comparison point.
0: Right. It, the weird thing with Odd Future is that, like, you know, like you said, it's all those different styles. And so, like, I never really got down with any of, like, the Odd Future mixtapes. Like, I, I didn't think, they didn't really have great chemistry altogether. Mm-hmm. But it's been interesting to see where all those artists have grown. Where yeah. obviously Frank Ocean has put out some of the better records of the decade. Uh, Tyler the Creator, I thought on his last album, Flower Boy, really came into his own. Um, Earl Sweatshirt, as you mentioned, has put out a couple great albums and is just an unbelievable lyricist. Um, but then you even be- talk about someone like uh, like Domogenesis has carved out a nice little niche for himself. And yeah,
1: I, I still kind of maintain that like he's probably the second best rapper in that group behind Earl. Like, the way that Damo Genesis like hits a beat and like can kind of just ride a beat with how he's rapping is is pretty ridiculous.
0: Right. When I just I like the consistency you get from Damo. like he is, he very clearly he's someone I, I got a belief where I just I don't like how people make an evaluation of something right off the bat and they don't let them improve. I'm, right. I'm very much a believer that if you give something time to grow, a lot of times it will grow. And Dom was a great example of that, because I thought early on he was pretty bad. And yet, you know, you look back at it, and he worked his way up to the point where he had multiple features on Pinata. You mentioned the Mad Gibbs album. I mean, one of the best rap albums of the decade, and he was able to get that. He was able to get enough cred where he's able to do a collaborative album with Alchemist, one of the top producers out there.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's just strictly from Hustle.
1: Hell, he's on... I mean, he got... Yeah, he got Earl and Vince Staples and Action Bronson all on one song with, uh, freaking Elimination Chamber. I mean, oh yeah. So people definitely, people definitely ride uh, with Donald when it comes to rapping. But yeah, mm-hmm. Earl like is still obviously on another plane altogether. I keep saying plane for things, but uh, it's definitely on another level versus any of those other guys. And like, does like who would people say is like the clearly defined? Uh, sort of best lyricist for, for Brock Hampton, even.
0: Um. Well, I, I think like clearly the most talented member of the group is Kevin Abstract. Yeah. Um. Who I I went back and listened to like his solo album All American Boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I had to turn it off. <laughs> yeah, like I, it's unbelievable. Like you listen to him with the Brock Hampton guys and their recent out like their albums last year, and you're like wow, this guy is so much more talented than everyone else. He can sing really well. He can rap. All that, and then you listen to All American Boyfriend, and you're just like, this dude just sounds like a whiny high school kid putting over like way too many effects on his voice. Um, Which,
1: man, we're sort of in a golden age, and I I, I refuse to believe that this is entirely just an age thing because, Mm. I mean, Julian Baker has like a lot of sad songs about romance and stuff, and they don't necessarily come off as like whiny. We are in a golden age right now though of just a lot of whiny like
0: <laughs> Oh my god, yeah. Music.
1: Um yeah, like fucking uh I was hanging out with some people the other day and they're I didn't know that much about Hobo Johnson but a lot of people seemed to not like Hobo Johnson because of just like some super super whiny like music going on
0: like is he like a rapper or is he so
1: it's like if bright eyes tried to rap but didn't try very hard at all and was just incredibly grating and mopey and whiny and sort of like entitled to someone else's like romantic time somehow
0: oh god so it's like if Kid Cudi was a creepy white guy
1: yeah kind of and, like, that's what's funny, is that, like, I mean, a lot of Drake songs, are like, sort of are in that mold, but A, Drake has really good beats, and so people mm. are willing to ignore some of that, and then, also, they're crafted slightly differently, even though, like, subject matter-wise, like, they're not necessarily that different from some other, like, mopey people that uh, listeners don't have any time for.
0: Right. <laughs> it's very sad boy shit. I mean, like... Um, you know, I, I'm still a big fan of Take Care, but... What do you call it? Marvin's Room. Eey. That is some <laughs> sad boy shit.
1: Yes, it... Although, I still, in general, I rep for Take Care being one of the five best hip-hop albums of the 2010s. Hands down. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes.
0: Ah. Uh, huh. I, I wouldn't go top five, but... What what else would be in your top five? I'm curious to see like what else did it, it's stacking up against.
1: Uh so some of the heavy hitters you might be able to imagine, uh, I mean my beautiful Dark Twisted Fantasy, I still am gonna put it's like not only the best rap album of the decade, but still the best album of the decade. And of course I mean we've got two more years to go, I still don't know how something is gonna is gonna knock that album off. It it helps so much, obviously that it came out in twenty ten exactly. Right. But no matter when it came out in the decade, it still probably had it been the same. It still would have felt like it was setting the tone for the decade. You know what right. I mean? Right. Like you just hear that album. You're like, yeah, this is a statement that's intended to last well beyond its original date. So that's one, um, kind of splitting the difference between good kid, mad city and take, or in Type uh, pepper butterfly. I still probably go good kid, mad city just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe in part because it it came first and allowed Kendrick to do something as audacious as "To Pimp a Butterfly." Right. Um, but also, like even though it doesn't have the same kind of musical strong that "To Pimp a Butterfly" does, what he decided to try to do with like the narrative, which unlike some concept albums, it actually kind of works, and you're able to follow it like right. I'll wrap up. Um, so that's definitely on there. Um, Take Care definitely gets shortlisted. That's three. I'd say Vince Staples' Summertime 06 is another one. I think that Vince is just such a great counterpoint to to Mm -hmm. Kendrick Lamar because Kendrick's shit still, like, buried at the bottom of all of it, there's still a tinge of hopefulness in there somewhere. Right. The, The Vince stuff is... Like, constantly tipping over into nihilism. Oh, yeah. Like, it's like, yeah, like, I'm not even gonna bother, like, trying to be hopeful about any of this, because I've lived through it long enough to know that, like, there there's no, like, there's not any salvation coming here, man. Right. Um, and then I'd say the other one, on a similarly sort of downbeat kind of note, is actually probably uh, Undone by The Roots. And I'm not even the biggest Roots fan, but I think that album is so incredibly tight in terms of like how it's put together and like everyone is at the top of their game um Mm -hmm. all the all the black thought tracks that he's actually rapping on like he crushes it the the fact that the album ends with like sufi and stevens music is incredible yeah um like they got big crit on a roots song which is still ridiculous as well i mean and i thought like
0: You talked about Black Thought killing it. I thought Big Crit murked Black Thought on Make My.
1: Yeah, like, I I had, like, my interest was definitely peaked when they were talking about that album as it was rolling out because they were talking about it in your life, the concept of it, and sort of how they put it together, and it's only, like, this 38-minute album. And, like, my, like, ears were definitely up for it at that point. But then Mm -hmm. actually hearing it was just a whole other thing. And I hadn't heard it for a while until, again, recently, and I, I think because of just how carefully constructed that album clearly was, right. it it still holds up remarkably well, and I think ages like, pretty damn well, even though it came out in 2011.
0: Right, and it's pretty interesting to see the progression of the roots where, after things fall apart they dropped uh two of the additional rappers in addition to black thought it was uh dice raw and then i forgot who else got dropped but at that point from that point forward so pretty much from the millennium from this entire millennium he's been the sole frontman of the group and it's been incredible how selfless black thought's been because he's allowed the he doesn't mind sitting in the background and letting the group Build up these really and creative song. I mean, song and album ideas that wouldn't work if the rapper wasn't on board with being able to say, like, you know what? I don't have to rap this entire track. I don't have to do that. This song yeah. could be great without that.
1: Which that definitely only happens when you have someone that's like in the kind of echelon that uh, Black Thought is in, in terms of rapping abilities. Right. Like I, I don't think a less talented artist would feel as comfortable seating that kind of space because they would still feel like they need to prove something. Right. But I thought, I mean, even though like that freestyle that he did, the ten minute one on Hot ninety seven felt like him trying to prove something. He doesn't really need to prove anything. Like no. he doesn't want to.
0: <laughs> He's just coming back and letting you know, like, hey, if I wanted to do this, I could, I could make all of you disappear right now and make every other rapper irrelevant exactly
1: like it's just like I I can come down from the mountain if I want to at any moment
0: (laughs) and I would almost say that like that's what held back in my opinion I think that's something that held back Nas throughout his career is that he always wants you to know that he's a great rapper every album he's gonna let you know he's a fantastic rapper and sometimes that's gonna be to the detriment of your enjoyment of the music
1: yeah Uh, yeah the Nas thing is still one of the strangest, like... It is funny, actually, this is... Here's a here's a good comparison to Crossover over the Sports again for a second. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know how, especially with basketball, like... And I guess baseball, too, is where the two where it happens the most. One of the surest, like, signs that someone is going to be incredibly good is if their parent was just sort of, like, a mid-level, like, player, mm-hmm. you know? Like... I mean, I guess Del Curry and Michael Thompson were maybe a little higher than that. But, like, right. I mean, they, they weren't what Clay Thompson is now or what Steph Curry is now. Or the same thing with, like, Kobe Bryant's dad. There's some of that, too, in rap music where, like, if the person's, like, mom or dad was, like, a jazz musician, like Nas's was, or, like, a poet, like Earl's dad was, mm-hmm. like, those are the people you need to be looking out for because those are people... That for whatever reason there's just a great carryover between those worlds that ends up working out incredibly well, and yeah, I still just don't know with the absurd talent that's on like Illmatic that very much is like a jazz like rap kind of album. Just you can tell that no, it's a big jazz head. It it still is weird that that's never been approximated by him on another album. Like not even close. He's put out other good albums, but. And I mean, I understand you put out an iconic album. It's going to be hard to do another one, but like he hasn't even gotten close to that summit
0: again. Right. And he, it's just weird. Like he just happened to stumble into 10 tracks produced by all of the best of the best guys at that time. You end up with beats from Q-Tip, DJ Premier, Pete Rock, Large Professor. And I just, and I don't know why he didn't, he never thought, maybe I just go back to those guys. Those guys are doing a pretty good job.
1: Yeah, and it's always, too, I do wonder if it's a thing... You know they talk about with with movies and with albums that you have your whole life to make your first album? Right. I do wonder how much of that factors in with, with Illmatic, too, versus everything that's coming after that with Nas.
0: Absolutely, because Illmatic was... It was pretty much just him making observations about everything. And... I, you know, I was still able, to, I still enjoy it. I mean, I was able to like relate to those things, even though they aren't specific to me, just the whole idea of trying to struggle to grow up in the environment that you're placed in. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I mean, as he went on, like he just kept trying to, he kept overthinking things. Like yeah. you have that song on uh, the second album. What was it? The one where it's like from, it was like from the perspective of the gun or something.
1: Yeah. trying to think of the actual title of that one too but if i own the world
0: or something or he
1: he he started really overthinking songs
0: right um and that's kind of what i liked about damn you know it'd be you know we're talking you know like to pebble butterfly is everything that's ever happened to kendrick and it's like where do you go from there he's like well i'm just gonna make an album about how i'm feeling Yeah, not super complex and like we both agree that Damn isn't the all-time classic that Good Kid, Mad City, and To Pebble Butterfly are, but it's still a damn good album, and it's not setting his career back at all, and he's continued to progress forward.
1: No, not at all. Like, yeah, I love how much more pared down that album was. Like, that was sort of the perfect move to do after those... Two. Like, everyone in some way should have seen it coming after him doing two albums of just dense, sprawling kind of material that, of course, the next album was going to be incredibly like pared down by comparison right and that that said as much as i love damn i don't even think that damn is the the best hip-hop album that came out last year
0: no i was actually i was surprised whenever you you said vince staples for your top five of the decade and i was like wow he's gonna put big fish theory here
1: i mean yeah big fish theory definitely is yeah my favorite rap album last year um actually it's kind of a triumvirate between big fish theory damn and 444 four, four is, I think, probably going to hold up really well as one of Jay-Z's, like, best records. Right.
0: 444, four, four, um, it... 44, or 444, whatever you want to fucking call it. It, um, it reminds... Four Force. Yeah. Um, it reminds me a lot, going back to Nas, of his album from 2011. Um, it's going to kill me what, not knowing what it's what it was called, but it was Nas's divorce album.
1: Yeah. Um, uh, life is good.
0: Life is good. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And with this one, it's not necessarily Jay Z's divorce album, but both times it felt like with both albums, it was the first time that these rappers were addressing topics that were very specific to them being middle aged and finally accepting that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like not unlike like the second, um, Raekwon only built for Cuban Links album. Yeah. Also had a similar sort of thing of definitely clearly being more aged and much more lived in than the first one was. Like, and the obviously that was all like fictitious, right? But it works in much the same way of sort of being, you know, a lot of time has passed and like I'm much more heavy headed now, and like this shit is not nearly as easy as it used to be.
0: <laughs> exactly. And I get that rap more than most genres is a young man's game but i think that there's something interesting to be said about being middle-aged or being older um because like every bit it seems like every bit of media we have is about being young and growing up and all that i want something about the struggles of just being like a regular ass adult where you gotta fucking pay a mortgage and you got some little shitty kid you gotta watch after
1: exactly and like Like, a small detail like that, even though obviously Chance is not an old by any stretch of the imagination, but, like, uh, even, like, the sentiment on Smoke Break, something like that, is a a really great, just, like, grown-up kind of thing of, like, man, I would just love some time away from my kids, even for a couple minutes, to just smoke really quick.
0: (laughs) Right. Um, And it's crazy that, like, this track with Future on there was perhaps the most creative song concept on there. Yeah. But, yeah...
1: Like I definitely – in much the same way that, to bring it back to talking about like religious stuff earlier, um, I kind of really appreciate the, the church that I go to. One of the pastors is, is older. He's probably in his like mid-50s. And the other one, there's no way that he's older than I am. And like he's doing like the you know the main order of service or whatever, but he's not doing the sermon. And I'm like, yeah, that's good. Like what is he going to have to talk about as like a 20-something to sermonize you know to a group of people? And it's not that different with rap or like rock or anything else where just by default, even if it's not going to be maybe super interesting, you're just going to have more experiences.
0: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, And that's what's kind of weird about um, like the rise of Run the Jewels, a group that I absolutely adore. But yet (laughs) it's very rare that Killer Mike and LP ever talk about topics that are germane to being in their 40s.
1: Yeah, not really.
0: <laughs> um, you know, you could have told... I mean, like, you could tell in their voice that they're older, but, you know, like, if you just took the lyrics and you took the beats of it, you would think that those were, like, two 22-year-olds.
1: Yeah, because, yeah, there is still definitely plenty of piss and vinegar in, in, in like, those two. like.
0: <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah,
1: they, they are not settling any time soon. Yeah, Killer Mike's, like, 42, and LP. LP's got to be pushing 40 also. Yeah. What is he, 43. Yep.
0: Yeah, LP's getting married too. <laughs> That's sad to see. Um that
1: inexplicable pair. Wow.
0: Right. Um and like and you look back in retrospect and it made so much sense, but I never would have thought to put those two together.
1: Oh, actually, here you go. LP, son of a jazz pianist. I did not know that one. So Really? Again, just look out for those kids of like jazz musicians.
0: Well, I guess also it helps that, like, a lot of those jazz musicians were kind of shitty people and were (laughs) were out of their children's lives. So they have all the talent of a musician, but also all the pain of an orphan.
1: Yeah, they've got some of those attachment issues going on. Which, actually, if I remember right, yeah, both of Prince's parents were, like, jazz people also.
0: Right. I know that, like, his dad was, like, trying to be a star and he didn't. So he's like, I'm going to name my son Prince and he's going to be a star.
1: Yeah. Which, I mean, that that ended up being some, like, Tiger Woods and his dad level stuff in that case.
0: Right. Like. <laughs> and not even, like, uh, it's because you straddle the line where it's, like, you're either, you know, the, the line between Eldrick, or not Eldrick, between, like, Tiger's dad and Michael Jackson's dad uh-huh. is so thin. Where yes, you're like, wow, it, you raised this great person versus... Holy shit, you traumatized this dude so much that he had to be famous to get any love in his life.
1: Yeah, exactly like it I mean, it's raz- it's a razor-thin line to the point of almost being non-existent. Right. The difference is, well, maybe not Tiger, but we could say the same about like the the Williams sisters' his dad, like um was pretty like authoritarian too, but right. like because those two have never really had any like quote-unquote incidents right. like we don't Use that as like sort of a check mark against like their dad in any way,
0: exactly. <laughs> um, and that I mean, a lot of that might just come down to the fact, uh, just come down to the core personalities of Serena and Venus being perhaps they're just a little more emotionally stronger than someone like LP or Nas is, or yeah. like I mean, I, I don't know, I mean, that's just obviously pure speculation.
1: Yeah, it definitely there definitely is always something to be said to with people who finally blow up a little bit later on obviously more likely than not they're going to be able to handle things a little better mm-hmm. um like who's a great well great example in acting of that is John Hamm I mean John Hamm was just kind of puttering around before Mad Men right and like Mad Men breaks and he's winning all these awards and he's in like a lot of other more high profile movies now and there's no like John Hamm scandals since then really like he was
0: like was, uh, an I know like he came out and was like an alcoholic or something, mm-hmm. like whatever.
1: But yeah, yeah, dude was clearly just like kind of ready for it because he'd already been kicking around for so long, like.
0: Right, there's no way to. He was too old to have been ruined by celebrity.
1: Yeah, and like if you're like one of those guys, like whether it's a rapper like LP and Killer Mike definitely fit the bill, or John Hamm, where it it doesn't come easy right away, where you're just having to plug years and years and years and years and then it finally happens like that's it and that it's not even necessarily like the Malcolm Gladwell like 10,000 hours kind of thing it feels even a little different than that in some ways versus like Prince and Michael Jackson or some of those other preternatural talents I mean they just broke right, right away almost it seems like there wasn't right. a lot of like before for any of those guys or Stevie Wonder but even Jimi Hendrix as like quickly as he came and went he was like just like a backup guitar player for the Isley Brothers like he put in time
0: where he was I he uh what you call it? that cut out a little bit when you were talking about Hendrix before you sa- the last thing it said was uh, Hendrix was a backup guitarist for the Isley Brothers
1: Yeah like and like Hendrix definitely fits more of like a killer mic or LP sort of thing than like a, like a Nas or even Jay-Z. I guess Jay-Z was like around for a little bit before that, just like posse cuts for Big L or guys like that. Right. But yeah, like Hendricks was just like doing backup guitar playing for the Isley Brothers and like Little Richard before he like broke through. So some of those guys, yeah, you, they're just plugging away for ever and ever before it finally just comes together. Perfectly, which I mean, is as good a case as any that so much of this just comes down to luck,
0: <laughs> right? Exactly, because you, you just have to wonder, like, what happens to the people who didn't get the right break?
1: Yeah, like, like Nick Drake, Nick Drake is one of the most absurdly talented, like, folk singers probably ever. And, like, dude, by the time he died, had sold like 5,000 albums, and now he's one of the most, like, heralded, like, music blogosphere, like, psychedelic folk dudes ever.
0: Right, and he's the kind of guy that you felt that you sort of read his bio and you think this is a guy that has a little bit of star potential because it wasn't just that he was a great musician, but remember he was also an incredible athlete. Growing up, he was he was the best at ever pretty much anything he did, and he was considered a pretty handsome guy. It, it just strikes strikes me that he could have gotten kind of big on like maybe like a Van Morrison level or something.
1: Yeah, or like another one like that definitely too. It's, it's sort of funny and easy now with no perspective to listen to the big star albums, all three of them, and go like, how the hell did this not break in any way? But, I mean, again, especially with music, I mean, shit sometimes just really comes down to luck and sometimes it takes a while right. for shit to be properly heralded. I guess the only other thing that's even more so like that is sometimes with literature it can just take a long time for something to be properly appreciated. But though. Movies usually people will get there a little bit faster. Like even, I think, a decade after Citizen Kane came, came out, it was starting to pop up on like list of the best films ever made. Right. But yeah, like Nick Drake took until that Volkswagen commercial in like 1999. That was 20, 30 years later.
0: Right. Uh, and you know, a lot of it is just like the timing, where you know maybe whatever you're doing just isn't what's popular at that time. <sighs> Yeah, you know, like what happens if ASAP Rocky puts out Live Love ASAP in two thousand seven, and people aren't really into that cloudy, chopped and screwed New York meets Houston vibe, like they are in twenty eleven.
1: Yeah, if I, that is ASAP Rocky is a good test case for that because, yeah, his his record being the first sort of opening volley by someone in like kind of cloud rap aesthetic, mm-hmm. it, it probably would have just dead-ended and not gone anywhere versus like you need you always need those people which i guess with cloud rapids probably will be among anyone else right that are gonna like kind of sacrifice themselves a little bit to try some new and weird shit and then someone else is gonna like push forward with it and actually make it work in a lasting way right which which actually yeah failing to think about that live Live Love ASAP definitely comes close to that short list for rap albums from this decade.
0: Oh, yeah. It was right up there. Um,
1: I, would, I, I would still maintain, in terms of, like, most musically important rap albums from the decade, it definitely is on the short list.
0: Absolutely. And, well, you know, you're talking about, like, someone's got to experiment, then someone will swipe in and do it right. Uh, I mean, that's pretty much just been the Drake formula. Just yeah. <laughs> find what else someone else is doing really well, and then you take it and you perfect it.
1: Yeah. And maybe people... Don't like that as much with Drake because it's more transparently obvious. Op- okay, Drake is just like stealing someone else's wave right now. Um, but yeah, I mean that happens all across music. But the Drake thing, it just in some ways seems more blatant, I guess. Right. And that and that's why he ends up eating more shit for it than other people would.
0: Well, and also he's just a very obvious example. Um... Well, because, like, it's, it's not even that, like, he'll, like, rip off a song. He'll literally, like, wasn't Hotline Bling just Cha-Cha by Dram?
1: So, still the weirdest thing with that song, I swear, when it originally came out, and I still have this version of the track saved on my computer, because originally when it came out on, like, what is, what, OVO Radio, I think is their channel? Yeah. It came out as Hotline Bling, parentheses, Cha-Cha Remix. And it was, like, a six-minute song instead of a three-minute song where basically the song played over again. Right. Um, and, yeah, it was Hotline Bling, parentheses, Cha-Cha Remix. And then that got dropped so quickly after that. And then I kept waiting for the sort of anything from, like, Dram to pop up with that or, like, people even be like, yo, this, like, the beat for this is so similar to Cha-Cha, what the hell is going on with this? And then, like, yeah, it kind of came and went really, really quickly.
0: And what's odd is that, like, Drake came out and said, and I believe him, he said that, you know, someone was just playing the track and they wanted me to put my vocal over it. Uh, I think that the term is, the proper term is called toasting. Um, Where, you you, you know, you just take the dub plate of the beat and you just sort of do whatever with it. And so I don't... I don't have a problem with that, because I thought, I still think Hotline Bling" is an incredible song. Um, it's,
1: it's really amazing how many years you can make the case for Drake having the best song from that year, even if he didn't necessarily have the best album.
0: Oh my God. Um, what was the one off Nothing Was The Same?
1: Um, well, let's see. What, what are we going to go with? Hold on, we're going home?
0: Yeah, yeah. I've got my eyes on you. Yeah,
1: I mean, that. Yeah, that's one of them right there. Like, um, I'm on one definitely like shortlist for 2011 best songs mm-hmm. and just kind of dominated everything. I mean one dance and controller obviously ended up dominating a lot. Yeah. And then right away, as soon as more life came on to album music, it was like, yeah, passion fruit's going to be hanging around for a long time.
0: Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's somewhat like I hate Drake and yet I like, he's so funny. Like, his whole existence is hilarious.
1: Yeah, no, like, that's, I think forever the the relationship with Drake, with people that are generally our age, is either going to be love or hate for some of the same reasons that Drake is the, like, perfect image and poster child for, like, the millennial generation. (laughs) Right. And all of its glories and failures, like, in terms of just chronic oversharing and all of the rest of it,
0: one well, like chronic oversharing to justify misogyny, too.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that cannot be forgotten for sure. Chronic oversharing and, like, yeah, to justify that and then just, like, a sort of musical taste that's all over the place and burrows deep into, like, SoundCloud or other weird backwaters of YouTube.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, you can't, like, you have to give him credit. Like, the dude is always on top of the trends, and he absolutely is a talented enough artist where he can i mean not in theory like i could you or i like we keep up with the trends we could just be like well i'm going to toast over the cha cha thing but like yeah. neither of us are talented enough to take advantage of that whereas drake he can sing and rap and do to the point where he can kind of do any sort of song he wants to and
1: it is kind of interesting that drake hasn't sort of uh ridden the wave even more of some of the like SoundCloud rap stuff like he pops up on a little bit of it but not as much as anyone would think for him being such a trend hopper right and I wonder if he just sort of like intuitively realizes that that is a style that's not going to last that long like right if Lil Yachty or Lil Uzi Vert are still around and doing like substantive music in 10 years I will be Completely amazed.
0: Right, I agree, and I say this as someone who still is a pretty decent fan of Lil Boat. Yeah. Uh, but I guess that's also part of it. Is that Drake knows what trends to hop on and which ones to avoid.
1: Yeah, which I mean, that's when you get to a certain level of being like a music talent, having that good of a like, curatorial instinct is going to keep you going even longer.
0: Right, and that's, and I feel like, it's. Uh, I feel like it's disingenuous to talk about Drake being a hopper like that or like to be like a genre hopper or like just trying to steal other waves and not mention that side of it. Because there is a there is some creativity to that. It's like how you talk about how like, you say like, you know, Kanye, you know, let's face it, we know that like most of the projects, at least especially the back half of it, it's not like he is in there making every single beat He's not writing every single line and he's involved with all of it, but he knows like what to tell people what to do. And that's just a different form of producing and a different form of creativity that I would feel uncomfortable saying makes him a fraud.
1: Oh, for sure. And like, I, thankfully there's not a lot of serious music people that have this sort of belief, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: but like, yeah, what, somebody like Drake does in getting everybody under the same umbrella or Kanye with hell, even actually like late registration for where Kanye was getting a lot of help because I mean, he bought, he brought John Breon on, on that one and like had all kinds of strings and stuff that in some ways takes a lot more talented abilities to get everybody on the same page. It's sort of like the, like, like John Wooden or somebody like that to like, well, of course, John wouldn't won all those championships. He had Kareem Abdul Jabbar and Bill Walton and mm-hmm. all those guys. But, I mean, that's so much harder to shepherd and get everybody on the same page. Right. And still, by far, the best example of that to me, probably, at least in popular music, is probably Brian Wilson with, you know, the mid 60s Beach Boy stuff. Like, yeah. was Brian Wilson doing every last, like, note? Hell no, not even close. But, I mean,. Like, it's the like the Steve Jobs line about playing the orchestra versus playing in the orchestra.
0: Right. When he's able to say, all right, I want you to do this, but maybe a little louder here, maybe a little more forceful there, uh, maybe take a little mustard off here. Um, that editing ability, yeah. I mean, I, I and I would agree with the Brian Wilson thing. I would say, uh, if, I think if we're talking best albums of this decade, the only one that I would put... Right up there with Dark Twisted Fantasy, and have a very difficult time deciding is the Smile Sessions, which mm-hmm. is, I guess, technically that's supposed to be like, it, it depends if you consider that like a 60s album or 2011 when it was actually released, is the only distinction. But because that is like right up there with like, is almost as good as like Pet Sounds.
1: Yeah, 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 I don't know where you place that necessarily timeline wise, obviously. Because like, we know when it was supposed to come out and then when it did. And it does just kind of, in part because of the different musical styles that the album plays with, it kind of just exists outside of time anyway. Right. Um, and I, I just love that whole period because there's a whole Wikipedia article about like a journalistic tagline that was, Brian Wilson is a genius, which I think originally was from like an, an NME article about the Beach mm-hmm. Boys and Brian Wilson. And like that's just such a hilariously distilled quote that kind of gets at someone like Brian Wilson. Or Kanye, I'm sure there's
0: similar Kanye quotes, but yeah, Brian Wilson is a genius, right? Um, And kind of weird how he got bigger in England than he was in uh, America. Did you? I thought it was pretty funny. Like when I read his Wikipedia page, how like uh, later on in the group, he he thought like they were maturing to a different sound, so he wanted them to change their name from the Beach Boys to the Beach. Which would
1: have uh, predated the uh, the Alex Garland uh, book slash Leonardo DiCaprio movie by like several decades.
0: Yeah, it's incredible what foresight that Brian Wilson had.
1: They could have yeah, it could have gone down a whole different road. Um, yeah, that that would have been a mistake by that point. You can't change your name. That well, unless you're Two Chains. Two Chains is the one time where a name change actually worked. I think. I think. In the history of music name changes, that seems to have been the only successful one, unless I'm missing
0: something. Right, and I think it's still key for Two Chainz's career that he was at one point Titty Boy, because yeah. then he can <laughs> reference it in later lines, like on yeah. 3500. It's like, yeah, my name is Titty Boy. I don't fuck with hoes that wear sports bras.
1: Yeah, like <laughs> he can still go back to that if, if he wants to. But yeah, boy, the the track record of yeah bands changing their name or like artists changing their name is not good
0: yeah no. <laughs> i already like i i've learned what Viet Cong's new name is eight times and i still don't remember what it is
1: uh i'm having to look it up right now preoccupations
0: and i'm gonna uh, forget that again
1: in about five seconds